This is the podcast of the Modern War Institute at West Point, an integrative look at war, policy, and leadership. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi of the Modern War Institute. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Roger Shanahan, a research fellow at the Lowy Institute. Dr. Shanahan is a former Australian Army officer who serves as a director of the Army's Land Warfare Center. Dr. Shanahan has also served in multiple Australian embassies in the Middle East. Today, we'll be looking at the city of Aleppo as a case study and how elements of the fight around the city of Aleppo in recent weeks apply to the larger war in Syria. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shanahan. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. Um, Syria as a topic is kind of a, a big thing to take on. Um, so I thought it might be useful to take a case, especially with Aleppo being in the news recently, of Aleppo as a way to talk about the larger conflict. Um, what is sort of the situation going on in Aleppo right now? Uh, the Syrian government and its uh, allies both on the ground and uh, in concert with Russian air support have really been trying to cut off the northern supply lines into uh, Aleppo city. Uh, they'd started prior to that in securing southern Aleppo province, so to the south of Aleppo city. Um, they had taken uh, Quares or broken a siege in the Quares uh, airfield um, prior to Christmas, and that was both uh, at the time seen as a, a um, positive um, uh, aspect of, you know, what many thought might have just been a uh, an operation to restore morale, but it appears they've used that as a firm base to push further north and then hook around um, north of Aleppo City and then make for the two main uh, main supply routes coming from Turkey. At the same time, the Russian air campaign has um, increased in the intensity um, and reports are that um, a large part of the focus of the bombing around uh, Aleppo was in support of operations to cut off those two main supply routes. So uh, people are not exactly sure what the strategic aim is, whether it's to cut off Aleppo, um, looking at Aleppo itself, and um, then to strangle Aleppo, or to uh, weaken uh, a broader coalition of Islamist groups and perhaps take um, with the intent not just to lay siege to Aleppo, but uh, actually to take Aleppo, and that would um, uh, mean that both flanks of um, really the non-Islamic state rebel groups that are concentrated in and around Idlib province um, are, to all intents and purposes, uh, encircled, and the only uh, exit route they have is really north through Turkey. So... Um, Really, Aleppo has become uh, the focus of the fighting now, not necessarily Aleppo City, but the areas around uh, Aleppo, and particularly the main supply routes that has strategic um, purpose in um, putting the focus on Aleppo at the same time as they do negotiations. But it's also putting pressure on regional states and painting them in a corner in some uh, instances because it's cutting off Turkish access to pro-Turkish rebel groups outside of Idlib. So it's serving multiple purposes for the Syrian regime at the moment. Aside from the strategic uh, importance of Aleppo, what significance does Aleppo have to the narrative of the Assad regime and the uh, the rebels that are fighting the regime right now? Well, Aleppo has always been a commercial centre 
of um, of Syria, and it's always had a very close relationship with Turkey because it's so close to the Turkish border. There's been um, long-standing uh, economic relationships uh, between um, Aleppans and the Turks, and they've seen uh, the Turks themselves have seen um, uh, Aleppo along with Idlib as the two areas where they're able to um, two large population centres that they're able to influence um, from um, uh, Turkish territory. If that was to um, if um, Aleppo was to either fall or be uh, encircled by the Syrian regime and the Turks be unable to relieve it, that is uh, not only a tactical victory for the Syrian government, but it's also yet another blow to um, the Turks. The Turks themselves are feeling themselves squeezed from the west by the Syrian regime because they've now taken Latakia uh, and sealed off some of the border areas in the far west. Uh, in the east, uh, we're seeing the Kurdish forces um, clearing areas um, on the Syrian side of the border. So we're looking at an area um, that the Turkish government is at, or um, an area that the Turks either themselves or through their regional partners, the area that they're able to resupply uh, pro-regional states um, uh, opposition forces is getting squeezed from both east and west. If they can cut off areas um, to the north of Aleppo, while you can never completely seal off the borders, um, those are the main suppliers just make it all the more difficult to get uh, large quantities of uh, logistics large quantities of weapons in a kind of timely fashion to support them. So, again, we kept on coming back to the fact that Aleppo's uh, got some symbolic uh, importance for the regime, but it's also got a great deal of practical importance uh, and the symbology of what it means to regional states is sending a very strong message to Turkey in particular. As you've been talking about, aside from the actual on-the-ground fighting between rebel groups and Assad's forces, there's the background conflict and maybe not so much a background conflict between Turkey and Russia and Russian-backed Syrian forces and U.S.-backed rebel forces. How does the multiplicity of those groups and their various elements supporting them affect the way that the eventual fight to take Aleppo ends up playing out? Yeah, I mean, this... Um, this has always been one of the most difficult issues and certainly I was in the region in uh, late December and certainly the one thing when I spoke to people both who go into Syria regularly uh, on the government side um, and also regional states um, who had always spoken to the Russians quite regularly, they were, um, they genuinely felt that both themselves and people in the region uh, were genuinely taken by surprise by the size of the Russian intervention. They didn't think it would um, happen as quickly and as decisively as it did. So it's really, um, really had a shock effect um, for people on the ground. And the Russians have always, uh, unlike the US and unlike the regional states, uh, the US, oh, sorry, the Russians have always viewed Syria as a, as a binary issue. So for them, it's quite straightforward. There's uh, the Assad regime, which they're supporting. Everybody uh, opposed the Assad regime. Uh, is there any men they'll be targeted? So this whole notion that we're there to 
uh, targeted Islamic State. I mean, that was just for the media. Certainly they do target Islamic State, but only insofar as uh, it suits their operational needs. If they believe that any other opposition group, a Free Syrian Army uh, aligned organisation, a Jabhat al-Nusra organisation, or any of the other plethora of Islamic State uh, rebel groups, if they were um, uh, in the way of an operational objective, they would be targeted. If it happened to be Islamic State, then all well and good, we can achieve two aims, but they've re- very rarely gone out of their way to target Islamic State simply because they're Islamic State. They really target um, rebel groups um, in order to strengthen the hand of the Assad regime. That serves the um, uh, operational purpose on the ground and it also serves a political purpose uh, because the longer you drag this out, the more degraded all of the opposition groups are. So when you get to the negotiating table, uh, it becomes less of a negotiation because we're not at stasis. As we see, momentum, military momentum has shifted very much to uh, the side of the uh, regime and its allies, and that momentum is translated in negotiation. So there's no real urgency on the side of the Russians, uh, Iranians and the Syrians to negotiate. They're more about giving demands. And if you want to take the demands now, that's fine, but we'll have another month of bombing and you'll be in an even weaker position. So the demands will be um, what the deal that we give you will be less than the one we have now. And I think the British are now saying um, have done some uh, research into uh, the weight of the air campaign and it uh, accelerated over the time uh, immediately leading up to and during the time of the, the talks in Geneva. So the Russians were um, very much uh, using um, military momentum as part of their political momentum. On the US side, you know, the US has always had a really difficult issue uh, to deal with in Syria for a variety of reasons, but the difficulty has always been trying to find the right partner on the ground. And uh, more recently, I think they have decided that the, Syri- that the Syrian Kurds are that kind of partner, and we've seen uh, momentum shifting to the Syrian Kurds as well. Um, that has... Um, cause dilemmas for the Turks in particular, but I think the US, the Europeans and most of the West are pretty sick of the duplicitousness of uh, Erdogan and the Turkish government, uh, and this has really painted the Turks into a corner. So in some sense, I think um, the Americans, while publicly have to say they're unhappy with the turn of events because of the way the Assad regime is being, uh, momentum has shifted to them, I think there's a lot of upside for the Americans. Upside might be the wrong way to describe it, but it's putting a great deal of pressure back on the Turks, political pressure. Um, They're losing um, their ability to influence events in Syria and uh, the Americans can now um, tell the Turks that unless they play nicely that um, they might have a lot more Kurds on their southern border um, than they would actually like. So... um, in terms of negotiation um, uh, power that the US has with regional states, I think that's a bit stronger. Um, in terms of negotiation um, power with the Assad regime, uh, it's less strong. So, but back to your original question, how is that all playing out? In a very, very confused um, situation, certainly uh, Russian air support has been decisive in some areas. It seems the um, Iranian, seems the Syrian military has been taking more of a backseat in the ground operations 
you would think they had nearly culminated previously and that was what um, pushed the Russians to intervene because they thought they um, were unlikely to be able to um, um, reinforce and re-equip themselves. They um, hadn't really been doing much by the way of manoeuvre operations, whether it was because they were not capable or their manoeuvre force, 4th Brigade, um, 4th Armoured Brigade, had been uh, exhausted because it was um, continually being deployed and redeployed. We don't we don't know that, um, but it seems that um, the Iranians have been doing a combination of uh, providing planning assistance, specialist um, um, you know, specialist forces. In some instances, perhaps manoeuvre forces, but the manoeuvre forces appear much more to be. Um, uh, Shia militia groups, so Iraqi militia groups who had left to go back to Iraq, some of whom have filtered back now. Hezbollah has, but it, in a lot of, certainly when I'm there, they, um, I'm advised that their preference now is to do operations closer to uh, Lebanon, so the Kalamoon area. They're very happy to do that. They have been out much further afield, but they're less inclined to do that for domestic Lebanese political purposes. And we've seen the casualty rates for Iranians um, have been increasing, which means they must be closer to the contact battle. So they're probably uh, they're either advise and assist missions, or they may be in um, uh, maneuver units, subunits. We don't quite know, but there are also other um, reports that probably less well trained Shia militias, Afghans, Pakistanis are also being used. So I think it's an amalgam of organisations that have been used on the Syrian side. And in and around Aleppo, in southern Aleppo province, there had been a fair concentration of Islamic State. In Aleppo city itself, it seems to be a combination of a range of Islamists, some Free Syrian Army uh, groups, some Jabhat al-Nusra, and there have been calls for them to unify in defence of Aleppo, but the Assad regime and everybody else knows that um, critical weakness of um, the opposition is their disunity. It has been from the start and continues to be, to be that, that way. Um, it has stopped them from getting any political traction because they've always been disunified and I think the Assad regime is using this military pressure and the presence of the Russians who are far less discriminatory in their use of firepower to try and um, uh, split them militarily. So despite the Iranian presence physically on the ground or the presence of Shia militias, it seems like the Russian air campaign has really been what's allowed the Syrian uh, army to make the gains that it's made recently uh, in Idlib and in Latakia and all those places. How are they using the Russian air campaign? Is it a case of close air support or is it more a strategic softening of targets before the Syrian army goes into an area? Yeah, I think it's the latter rather than the former, although um, it's very difficult to find out how you would um, to find out about exactly what's happening. I mean, the one question I've been, you know, from a tactical level, how are, how are JTACs or the equivalent of JTACs employed, given you've got Russian pilots with Russian aircraft and Russian communication systems supporting perhaps Syrian formations, perhaps Iranian formations, perhaps um, militias of different... Uh, ethnic groups with different languages. I can't see, you know, there have been some claims that there are some Spetsnaz out further. 
So I think, you know, one of the models that the West has used for coalitions is, you know, JTAC's back in, you know, um, battle group headquarters or the like, and that's where you have to do the uh, translating and the target selection. But I just think with the complexity of ethnic groups and the complexity of the level of um, training of the people, um, with the complexity of the ethnic groups and the complexity of the actual capabilities of the manoeuvre forces, I don't think they're manoeuvring, you know, that quickly. So I don't... I think it would be more... Um, a strategic bombing campaign to soften up an area. And the Russians, you know, as you know, they like the concept of manoeuvre by fire, so you use firepower as your, as your um, manoeuvre arm. Um, so I'd say that would be the preponderance of it, but I wouldn't discount there's some close air support. My only concern is I don't know how, exactly how that would be coordinated, but it wouldn't be coordinated at the very tactical level, probably battle group headquarters, which means it's pretty... That'd be pre-planned to a reasonable degree um, um, in front of any advance. That's kind of what I'm uh, what I would um, posit without knowing it for certain. Aleppo, before the war started, was the largest city in Syria. Once the actual fighting begins in the city, I know this is speculative, but what does the character of that fighting become? Does it become? a house-to-house, street-to-street sort of fight, or is it a little bit more um, a little bit more fluid than that where rebels are giving gr- giving more ground than they're holding? Yeah, well, I don't... I mean, you would assume that with Aleppo, you know, Aleppo is still held, you know, partially held by um, the regime. You would think what the regime has tended to do, to do in the past because, you know, as you know, urban warfare just sucks up um, people um, very very uh, quickly, and I don't. I think the last thing the regime would want to do would be to get into a major uh, urban battle um, where they know, regardless of the fact that they'll probably win, it's going to um, take a focus away from. Yeah, it may uh, reduce the momentum that they have uh, won at the moment. So I don't necessarily think that they'll go in and do that. Um, what we've seen in the past is um, the Syrian regime has been very keen to do negotiated, uh, piecemeal negotiated settlements. So you know, they call them ceasefires, but they're negotiated settlements um, where they strangle the uh, city through a siege. Uh, they uh, unleash air power. They put pressure on the ground so that the people can't exfiltrate. And remember, some of these got their families in there, so they're unlikely to exfiltrate on their own. And then in the great Arab tradition, we'll have a negotiated um, settlement where it might be that, uh, as you've seen in Homs uh, previously um, and further south in Kalamun, uh, fighters were uh, allowed to leave and in some cases take their small arms with them. So honour has been salved um, and both sides avoided a very bloody attritional warfare where the result was going to be the same in the end. So... I would be surprised if they went um, into Aleppo other than to cut it off um, piecemeal and to make um, uh, make escape out of Aleppo virtually impossible. And, again, with the Russians, as we've seen, that um, uh, they'll hap- happily do a kind of attritional air campaign against selected parts of Aleppo as a demonstrator of 
um, listen, we've got the um, uh, we've got the place surrounded. Um, we're putting pressure on you. Here's a suburb that will uh, will treat with air power, and we can do that every day for the next thirty days if you want, or we can have a negotiated settlement. So I, I just I think they've got more options um, um, uh, at their disposal. They've shown a willingness to um, to try and negotiate their way out of a situation previously. Yeah, and you would think um, militarily, you know, you've got momentum now. Uh, you've you appear to have learnt some. Um, uh, lessons about the use of manoeuvre, so you've been able to outmanoeuvre your enemies. Why get stuck into an attritional um, battle when you don't necessarily need to? Just at the time where you've kind of worked your way out of doing attritional warfare. So, I think I'd be surprised if we see it. Put it that way. So, the fighting in Syria recently uh, has sort of taken on a more high intensity character than at least for junior officers in the U.S. Army than we've seen in a long time that we have experience with. What are some lessons that current junior officers in the Army or cadets who are going to be in the Army soon can glean from the way that the fighting has happened, especially the more high-intensity fighting that's gone on involving the Syrian Army recently? Yeah, listen, I think um, one of the key elements that separates, oftentimes separates Western militaries from non-Western militaries is just the ability to manoeuvre and think in manoeuvrous terms. It's really been a combination of you know, static defensive operations or kind of attritional warfare um, on the part of the Syrian army, which they've been in many places defeated in detail by much more manoeuvrable opposition forces. The other issue is, you know, as we all know, um, very difficult to um, master the combined arms um, tactics and it requires lots and lots of training by professional um, soldiers to do it just because of the number of moving parts and all professional junior military officers will understand how difficult it is to you know, be a, a, a constant master of um, infantry armour, artillery, um, close air support. I mean, that is a difficult thing to master that requires uh, constant training before you employ it on operations. That's been virtually completely absent from the Syrian military. They largely, the one element that does um, manoeuvre um, has been overused and therefore becomes ineffective. They, there doesn't appear to have been any um, uh, coordination between the use of air support. Um, you know, the use of artillery seems to be um, uh, not in support of any ground manoeuvre forces, it seems to be used as an arm in its own right. So none of the, you know, what we think of senior officers um, uh, training their junior officers in thinking in manoeuvrous terms and thinking in combined use of firepower has been really absent from the Syrian uh, military, which is one of the reasons why certainly there have been some um, uh, tenacious fighters in uh, the rebel groups, uh, some of them have, you know, with the use of um, uh, the civilian SUVs that they've got in their own way, they've been manoeuvrist. But while we would look at it as kind of amateur hour um, manoeuvre, 
it's good enough for the Syrian military to outmaneuver the Syrian military because they've been so uh, static in their mindset. Part of that is also a reflection of the fact that you know, large part of the Syrian military were uh, conscripts, so they're just doing their eighteen months to two years, just did static guard duty. So a unit you know, might have looked at like a unit, and you can appear on a parade ground as a unit, but in terms of its operational effectiveness, it wasn't particularly effective. I think now we've seen the introduction of, or sorry, I'll just go back a step, one of uh, the earlier times around Color Moon and Crusair, which is probably the first time that we saw some um, uh, territory that had been lost by the Syrian government, uh, first time we saw it regained, uh, it was pretty... It was informative to see that it was really Hezbollah who did the manoeuvre, um, ground manoeuvre, and that was uh, light infantry ground manoeuvre, but it was still it was still the imported uh, Shia militias, very professional, who carried it out. It wasn't um, uh, the Syrian military because it was felt they weren't capable, and that was you know a medium-sized town. It was difficult, and it was difficult enough for Hezbollah to do it. Um, but it was deemed as beyond the capabilities of the Syrian military. So I think it just reinforces uh, for junior officers at West Point, it just reinforces the kind of training that you do is invaluable. Um, and I don't think you should ever assume that the kind of combined arms manoeuvre that we're all taught about as a junior military officer um, is second nature to anybody else. And you should never assume that it's uh, easy for other people to do. The kind of guerrilla tactics and insurgent tactics that the opposition have been using, um, certainly they've perfected that, but you could say if they were facing a first-rate um, military from the earliest days, would they have been able to do that? You know, first-rate military in the early days would have uh, conducted manoeuvre warfare and cut off the main supply routes uh, really early on. It's not until we've seen the introduction of Russian air power, um, large-scale Iranian advisors who've then allowed them to do manoeuvre, and now you can see where they've concentrated on. They've concentrated on main supply routes. Um, it appears in the south they've now, um, on the southern front, they've now had uh, success where they didn't have success before, and that the Russians also uh, shifted a weight of their operational effort down there to support ground campaign. So wherever they've um, integrated the air campaign with ground manoeuvre forces uh, and then targeted exactly what they should have been targeting, like the main supply routes, rather than trying to um, retake towns and villages first without worrying about the supply routes, they've been successful. So you know, the Russians and the Iranians understand how to do a scheme of manoeuvre and how to understand how to do a campaign plan. And I think that all comes down to military training and understanding at a tactical level how to integrate assets and at the operational level what the um, campaign plan should be. And it's always, you know, when you're facing an enemy that's got um, safe haven on the other side of a border, do everything you can do to cut off uh, those borders. And you know, unlike in a place like eastern Afghanistan, in northern, um, uh, northern Syria, except for the Western part, a lot of parties, a lot of it is relatively open. So you'll never be able to cut it all off, um, even if you wanted to. But, you know, the consistency of the import of heavy weapons and 
uh, large amounts of logistics supply, you can cut them. You should be able to cut them off, and so it'll make it all the harder for the opposition um, to resupply. So I think it's those kind of issues that junior officers should understand. Look at a problem not as battering ram. Look at how look at the enemy's key weaknesses and plan to um, attack those key weaknesses. But also, you can't do that unless you've got the assets yourself to do them and integrating all of the assets to come up with an integrated campaign plan to do that. And it's not until we've seen the Russians and the Iranians come in that we've seen that we've seen the shift in momentum. So as well as you know, the kind of assets that they brought to the table, they've obviously brought um, operational planning capabilities uh, that have been lacking previously. Great. Well, I think that's a good point to leave off. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and hope to talk to you again soon. No problem, Thanks. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the official position of the United States government. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. And I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth conversations on war, policy, and leadership.